Welcome to this extra special episode of the Pelvic Health Podcast. So I was approached a while back by an American physio named Tim Reynolds about contributing to a book called Movers and Mentors that he and his physiotherapist colleague Brian Gusky had been working on, which included some very big names and good friends of mine, such as Sandy Hilton and Julie Weep. Now, I actually didn't respond for some time to this email because I actually thought it was spam. But the proposed idea of this book, which included thoughts and stories from leaders in our field in order to provide guidance for the next generation of rehab professionals, really intrigued me. So did the questions that I was sent to ponder. Questions that make you think about yourself. For example, what books have greatly influenced your life? And if you could get a message out to all physical therapy or health professional students with regards to any topic, what would it be and why? Or questions about what kind of failures we've had and how they may have changed our direction. So while I wondered why myself of all people had been included in this project, I wrote my thoughts down and I sent them in. Just prior to this book's recent publication, which is now available on Amazon in Kindle and paperback, you can check out the show notes for more information, Tim emailed me about getting together to record a podcast, but him interviewing me instead of the other way around. And since I'm not a fan of answering questions and being interviewed, yet I don't mind having a sneaky G&T at late hours, I figured it could be fun to invite some friends. So this episode today, I am joined by the new episode host, Tim Reynolds, who is a clinical assistant professor of anatomy and physiology at Ithaca College and a part-time physical therapist practicing at Cayuga Medical Center in Ithaca, New York, and physiotherapists Julie Weeb, Sandy Hilton, and Biliana or Billy Kennaway. These incredible powerhouse women should be well known to all of you, but if you don't know who they are, you obviously haven't been listening to previous podcast episodes. Just kidding. Um, head to the show notes for their full bios and check out past episodes. And of course, stay tuned for future ones. <clears throat> Billy will also be on some more. Um, so just before we begin, although I managed to organize an international group Zoom party with the US, Australia, and Switzerland, I also managed to mess up the recording of our brilliant start to the conversation. So Tim has kindly re-recorded his intro for me and Julie starts us off. I hope everyone enjoys this episode. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having us on. Uh, it's an amazing opportunity. I'm so excited to have the chance to be able to sit down and talk to everybody here and share a little bit more about our project, Movers and Mentors. Movers and Mentors is a book that myself and one of my colleagues, Brian Gusky, have been working on for over two and a half years now, where back when we were in residency in Ithaca, New York, we were undergoing a lot of classes and taking a look at a lot of research and saw a lot of common themes in terms of who was putting out all of this information and content that we are absorbing. So individuals like Peter O'Sullivan and Tim Flynn and John Childs and Shirley Sarman. And we were seeing these movers and shakers within this industry. And at the time, Brian and I were both reading a book by Tim Ferriss, Tools of Titans. And in that book, Tim has the opportunity to uh, interview some leaders within a variety of different fields. 
and ask them a series of questions. So try to figure out a little bit more about why they tick and who makes or what makes them the people that they are um, and how do they become successful. And Brian posed the question of, I wonder what some of these individuals within our space of movement science and physical therapy would have to say if we asked them a series of questions that were unique and important to us. Things like, what is your favorite failure? Or what is some good advice that you hear within the profession? Or what are favorite books or investments? And things that we were being asked by students and residents. And, and we wanted to sort of find out what would our quote unquote PT heroes, if you would, think about some of these questions. And so over that two and a half year span, we were able to gather a list where we sort of went through and identified individuals, like I mentioned before, who were either putting out research or we were attending courses for or seeing on social media. This is a pretty wide list. And I think one of the things I wanna let all the listeners know is that there is no necessarily specific criterion that we were trying to follow as we were making this list. Because there's gonna be people that are gonna be obviously looking at this book and saying, how did they forget to interview so-and-so? And I think one of the big points um, that I'd like to make is that this is a living project where we have the opportunity to continue to reach out to these movers and shakers within our industry. Because in five years from now, there's gonna be a whole new set of clinicians producing a whole new set of research or moving the industry in one way, shape or form that are going to be potentially um, influencing the lives of, of hundreds of individual clinicians and people. And so as we were sort of putting together this master list, if you would, we started to reach out via email, kind of like cold call emails with hopes that they would respond back. And it's been an amazing experience. I think what's great about the PT profession is that we are all in this game to help our patients. And while we're helping our patients, we're all also helping each other. And so as we started to send emails, we started to gain a little bit of traction and through either setting up Zoom interviews or phone calls and then transcribing these interviews, um, we were able to gather, like I said, over 75 interviews within the pages of this book. And so some of the people we're lucky enough to be able to be talking to today, uh, Julia Weeb, Sandy Hilton, yourself. Um, this is a, such a cool opportunity um, to be able to sit down, talk, talk a little bit more about this project and dive into some of the questions that we were asking within the pages of the book. And I think one of the, one of the important questions or one that I'm personally excited about being an orthopedic uh, clinician who predominantly focuses with patients that have persistent, uh, persistent pain or spine pathologies is having a chance to ask you guys and have a conversation a little bit about what is good advice or bad advice that you guys typically hear within your area of specialty. So specifically within the pelvic health community. And so if we can kick that off and see what your thoughts are, um, I think that'd be great. If I had to give good advice, um, it would be to learn where to say yes. And I think, because I think that particularly in pelvic health, no is a lot of the bad advice that's been given out. Like, no, you can't do that. No, you know, your life's over. No, don't you know that you have a pelvic health problem or, you know, whatever it is. And so I think 
um, some good advice and it spans every area of our profession is learn where you can say yes, like find where you can say yes to your patients to allow them to get back to something that brings them joy. Like if we're really going to talk biopsychosocial in our world, what drives your patient, what lights them up, that's where we're going to find the magic of, um, of how we get people back to um, thriving again. And it's not that it's not important to pay attention to what's going on with the pelvic floor. You know, we've erred on the side of not integrating it in pelvic health. And then the rest of the profession has erred on the side of, like you said, Tim, making it, and, and pelvic health has driven this bus that it's mysterious and it's special and it's only for us. You know what I mean? So, so for sports medicine, ortho, neuro, like we can help and let's integrate and let's move together because all of those systems work together in the body and in that organism, um, as Eric Nero would say. <laughs> awesome. Billy, what about you? What, what sort of things do you perceive um, are good advice that's being provided within, within the realm of public health? I experience getting out of the clinic, out of that box is the best way I can understand my patient and how they move and why they leak or why they have pain. Um, I was limited when I first moved to Switzerland, finding the place and starting up my clinic. It was financially quite, uh, quite a difficult task, but actually starting picking up few patients and following them in their boot camps, following them on the stage when someone had a rock concert, understanding why they're getting pain and ending up in A&E all the time after the concert. Well, that was my eye opener. I don't need a cleaning five times a week five days a week. I need a clinic two or three days when I need to do internals. After that, I'm following my patient. And I think um, COVID was just an opportunity for most of my other patients who are less athletic or less maybe in performing arts that would come to me and they said, do you mind treating me um, in my environment, in my garden? Do you mind treating, treating me on a tennis court? It's wonderful. I understand so much more getting out of the clinic. Because even in the gym, in our, um, in our clinical environment, it's just artificial. It's not the same bike. It's not the same cross trainer. It's not the same weight they're lifting. You need to get yourself out there. And the other thing I always say, you have to experience. And I started that when I was um, still kind of rotating around different uh, specialties. If the patient comes and tells you they're getting pain and you don't understand they're getting pain when they're lifting the weight, or when they're doing Pilates, go to their class and trial it. You need to understand what these different activities are. I threw myself in aerial acrobatics due to my patient, threw myself into CrossFit. I did so many crazy things once or twice in my lifetime, but I'm happy because I experienced it. And it gave me a little bit of a taste and understanding where the symptoms or problems might be coming from. Now, I think that's I think that's valuable on, on multiple different fronts and something that we need to sort of incorporate more from a, from a physical therapy standpoint. It's so easy to prescribe exercises, but not necessarily make them functional or relatable to the individual that you have in front of you. And I think sometimes that difficult time trying to disseminate why is this going to make me a better acrobatist, right? Or why is this going to help me on the tennis court? we have a difficult time correlating that. And like, if you do uh, five of these side steps with the band around your ankles, that's really gonna solve this problem. Your, your glute med's gonna get a lot stronger. Um, but taking that initiative and showing that you truly care, and like, I'm gonna come and follow you and help you where you're having the difficulties in the moment. 
I mean, the amount of trust that you probably build with your patients and the dedication that they can see that you're investing to that, that's amazing. So I think uh, kudos to you and um, something that as people are listening, um, take that as a, as a pearl, if you would, to try to incorporate into your own clinical practice. I'm going to quote uh, Lori Forner straight from the book. Oh boy. I'm well, holding wait, my copy. Wait a minute. Why, why are we? Wait a minute. Here it comes. <laughs> wait, I got to go alphabetically. <laughs> okay, so this is riffing off of what um, Billy just said and sort of Tim, as you followed, is Lori's initial quote is if you can sit and truly listen to your patient's story, even if you don't know the clinical diagnosis, the fact that you listened and cared will mean more than you realize. And I think probably all of us in this space um, have worked with a lot of patients who like we're the 17th person they've seen or we're, you know, we're the, and, and it really came down probably the, the secret sauce was we just sat and listened. Like we actually worked to try to understand the patient, the person and the need kind of in a, in a different, in a different way to try to see them more as a person or see them the way that, you know, just to listen. It makes a huge difference. So I'm quoting Lori Forner there, everyone. No. And I think that's one of those things that that compassion, when you, you have to sort of check yourself at the door and always say, why, why did we get into the profession that we are in right now? And it wasn't because we wanted to be rich. Um, it wasn't because we wanted to pay off student loans for years. Um, it's because we want to help people. And so I think always coming back to the why of the profession and having the opportunity to see the person in front of you and not necessarily as a diagnosis um, is something that we have to continuously do and make sure even on our, on our worst days when we might not have had enough sleep or our coffee wasn't ready in the morning, we have to make sure that this individual is being thought of as a person and just listening to them. The power of listening is, is something that we cannot overemphasize. And with the opportunity to listen to all this good advice and some of these pearls that you guys are sharing, there's obviously bad advice. And this is something that as a uh, primarily orthopedic based clinician who is, uh, like I said before, not necessarily extremely well-versed, well-versed enough uh, in regards to the pelvic health world. I hear all these misconceptions being sort of thrown out there or this just lack of willingness to um, learn more about the significance of the pelvic floor. When you think about bad advice that you're hearing either on social media, within clinical practice, or bad advice that is being shared by your patients that come to you, whether that's heard from another practitioner, from friends, from their online research, what really stands out to you? And Sandy, if you want to sort of jump off and take that, that'd be great. I, I'm going to bring this conversation down. Welcome. <laughs> Some of the things that patients tell me just, just are gutting because they have, as Julie mentioned, have had a lot of don'ts and it's things like don't sit because sitting is going to make it worse and, th and that's it or sitting is going to make it worse because it will cause the late this is a direct quote from a patient don't sit because sitting will cut off the circulation to the latent trigger points in your pelvis and that will make you have pain for the rest of your life and that's all the person will the person was told a lot of other things but that was it about that particular statement and i thought this is an aberration and then a little bit you know, like that was just a one-off, right? No one, no one really docs like that all the time. And then this other person came in totally different way of coming to the clinic, different sex, different gender, different life habits, different jobs, was also told recently, this is, these are both 2021 examples, pelvic pain, don't sit at all. 
which is really tricky if you need to get to your job and your job is sitting. And this person was like on literally the verge of if this is my life, why does my life exist? And that's why I said I'm going to bring this down because I deal in chronic and persistent pain. A lot of people that are really on the edge of can I get better? Is this my life now? If this is my life now, why am I alive? First thing to that is make sure you have colleagues that you know in, health, in mental health because you're going to need some support and the, you need good referrals to send your patients to if they're really like seriously on that edge. To bring this all back to, to wow, that was dark, it, none of that's true. It's just, no. There's all these ridiculous other examples we could give for musculoskeletal problems anywhere in the body. But somehow the muscles and connective tissue and nerve supply in the pelvis is treated like it's some fragile little thing that's going to explode. And that's just not how bodies work. I think that's really good to highlight. Um, the psychosocial components associated with probably having and approaching someone for the first time that you have pelvic health impairments must be challenging. And this, especially because that's an area that I think does not necessarily get um, verbalized within society as it's okay that you have these issues. There's this stigma associated with pelvic health and just the pelvic region in general. We are not supposed to talk about our bathroom functions. We're not supposed to talk about our private parts. And so the fact that you're having some of these impairments and it's not necessarily across society perceived as okay. And then you're being told something by a practitioner who we put on some sort of patriarchal pedestal at times and then saying, oh, well, if they told me never to sit again, that's the first person that's willing to actually at least talk about this area with me. And since they are a medical professional, I'm going to take it for, for everything that it's worth, especially for you, Sandy, talking about working with patients that have persistent health or persistent pain pathologies. God bless you for being able to facilitate that conversation and at least provide some of the education to help remove some of that fear, some of the bad advice that's been promoted throughout their entire lifespan. So challenging for you, but also challenging for them at the same time. Thank you. Um, it, there are days. <laughs> These lovely ladies here get to hear me sometimes on my rawr. The good news about that, because I really do try and find what is the good news about this situation is that those were professionals who really thought they were helping. These aren't people who said, you know what, I'm going to go to work today and really mess up someone's life. These, these are people that, that think this is a terrible situation for this person. What advice can I give them to make it less terrible? I would really love them to be a bit more hopeful about the tissues. And that's how I try and present it to my patients is I get they were trying to help you, but the really good news here is they're missing some information. Let me tell you all this really cool stuff. Julie, what about you? What are things that, or what's like the most commonly heard thing that you're hearing within practice um, that sort of makes you cringe? I think we need to start changing our language around um, how we discuss pelvic health, period, um, in terms of, you know, how we discuss it with children, teenagers, college, you know, now um, that I'm now in uh, as a full-time professor working with uh, students, yay, um, and, uh, but I'm actually about to do a pelvic health pregnancy postpartum lecture lab for this their spine course. 
And, um, and there's been a couple moments along the way where it's been discussed and like, and I, and I'm going to say like, I, I don't, I sort of like, I don't want to call them impairments. Like I like, and I know that that's just what we've always called it. When we talk about spinal stuff, it doesn't come out quite the same way. So I decided that the title of my lecture lab is going to be, it's only weird if you make it weird (laughs) because it feels so like, oh, now we're going to, now we've had this, we have this whole special lecture on this stuff and it's important. And I'm so grateful they've hired me in part because of this, like this is, they want, they know that we need more of this in the curriculum. It's not just pee, poo, and sex. It's how we move. It's how we jump. It's how we lift loads. It's how like, and it's not just the pelvic floor either. Like I, I really tried to change my language to pelvic health. Um, and instead of just pelvic floor and, um, you know, so, so, but I, if I could talk about stuff around social media, which, um, particularly is fear, you, you know, I think I remember Sandy when you and I were like two of the earliest adopters of Twitter in PT, it was like she and I, Jen Miller and a guy that I can't remember who talked about craft beer all the time and Urson Religioso, <laughs> like it was the five of us. That was it. And, and it was really collegial. Like, I remember I used to be able to tweet, hey, does anybody have an article on X? Like, and people would throw me back stuff. Now it's, you don't already know about that. I miss when social media was um, like, it felt like a water cooler. And now um, it's tragically driving fear-based ideas and everyone wants to be the expert and sell a program or, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really... Um, it's just too bad. So I, I feel like I treat fear. Obviously, the, the powers and detriments of social media, where we have a lot of people trying to express their voices, and some people speak louder than others. And I think that's where we come into a little bit of conflict at times about what is the purpose of your message and what are your goals? Is it to try to get likes and follows, or is it to truly try to change the world? And I think that's where um, Hopefully, uh, within the pages of this book, we have a variety of different individuals. um, And to be able to take snapshots of their voices to create the mentorship that you're looking for is essentially the goal of our our project, which is great. Billy, what what are you you hearing? What what do you hear that you say, I wish I could just give me a second to speak and and try to change your thoughts or opinions uh, regarding that subject? Well, I hear at multiple levels here education, and it's not just education about educating our patients and telling them, you know, how how we approach their 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 presentation. It's educating our peers and our colleagues. So I teach at Geneva in Lausanne postgraduate courses, and they're mainly around pelvic health. I sometimes start by telling them, close your eyes. And then in 10 seconds, I'd like you to open your eyes, write on a piece of paper the last course you attended that is not pelvic health course. You can't be a pelvic health clinician, just going on and on attending pelvic health courses. You need to know a little bit more, what is going on um, out there with low back pain? Where did we get to with shoulder pain? Where did we we get to with neurological pathologies, pediatrics? We don't treat just a box again. I keep going on and on about the box. This is my new thing about pelvic floor is the box. Get out of that box and jump out of the box is not about the box. And that's always, not just sometimes, it's always. So that's the biggest thing that I think we are missing, not just in pelvic health, but also in sports um, medicine, in um, neuro, in any other um, area. And I think that opportunity to get out of the silos that we live in um, and be able to see the holistic approach to our practitioner 
right? And so we're, we're thinking about this idea, well, I'm going to go see a sports specialist, but they should be well-versed in multiple different things as well. Um, and having the opportunity to enhance your knowledge base outside of your quote-unquote specialty challenges your belief systems. And I think that's where um, there's this of a toolbox, right? And, and I, I have these tools within my toolbox that I'm able to call upon or utilize. And we have a McKenzie-based trained physician, uh, practitioners or Harris-based school of thoughts or Sarman-based. And not necessarily saying that we practice within only that realm, but I'm able to call upon different snapshots of my education to be able to treat not just your pelvic floor, but incorporate the fact that that's going to influence how you move here and interact with your environment in X, Y, and Z. Great, great piece of advice there. Lori, what about you? What are, what are you hearing? Oh, I think you guys hit it a little while ago with regards to the fear and pain and the words that we use, but that can be turned around into, I mean, my PhD is on prolapse and that term and the Googling and the pathologizing things that aren't pathological as in it's normal tissue laxity and movement but we've been trained to see any movement as something that shouldn't be there when it's connective tissue and it should move and we are then instilling fear in people to be afraid of moving um, doing things that they love trying different things i have seen women who won't pick up their children or their babies because someone has told them that they have a stage one prolapse. Obviously, there's other things that go into that postnatal depression. There's so many other things, but you think, yes, part of it comes down to what we're being taught, that even medical professionals were being taught to, you know, any bit of movement is stage one. And the further along we go, stage one is actually normal anatomical movement. Um, but I've known that for a while, yet I still see it being taught and I still have patients come to me and say, what's my stage? What's my grade? Someone's told me I have a stage one, I have a grade one prolapse. And then having to break that down takes a really long time. But that's again, where I think there's quite a few of us um, that are really good at, at supporting and being able to educate people about how things you know, should be rather than scaring people so much. So it's just that that fear part, I think is is still pretty um, large. I also see those people that come and they always, almost accept, oh, I have a prolapse, I'll have a surgery for that in a year's time. That's all right, can you help me with my back pain? And I'm like, wow, well, hold on, let's go, go back to square one. Who told you you have prolapse and who told you having surgery? Have you trialed anything else? No, that there would be, two, three months after giving birth, immediately accepting the fact that their gynecologist, the surgeon said, don't worry about that. We will, we will, um, we will operate a little bit later on. Uh, you just get on with your baby, do this and that, job done. So there is no, um, there is no trial of physiotherapy. There's no education. I even think there is a, such a big gap, especially in the area where I work. I mean, in the region, European region, I think where I work, what we can do they deem us as you either you either stop running and doing crossfit or you can so if you have a little bit of symptoms you stop don't go there anymore this is it we have to operate 
this is the this is the the, the environment where I have to kind of say, right, you accepted a surgery. Well, how about we trial something else so we avoid that? One of the one of the most exciting and fun parts of this project that uh, Brian and I sort of took on was being able to hear these various thoughts and bad advices and good advices that each of these individuals within their sphere of influence hear on a regular basis. Um, because I could talk about the worst arthritis I've ever seen and all this other stuff that I typically hear from our patients walking in our orthopedic clinic. But for those individuals that pick up the book and have the opportunity to flip through their pages and get to the Lori Forner chapter and, and say, oh, wow, like that is a completely different component and kind of goes along with what Billy was talking about, getting education outside of your sphere of knowledge base. And so you can listen to what Nicole Stout talks about from a cancer research standpoint, right? Which is an element of, we're all gonna come across that patient population in some way, shape or form. But once again, that's a subspecialty that we might not necessarily be able to speak to as well, but potentially dive into a little bit of her research so you can know a little bit more, right? And so I think one of the beauties of, um, of this project, the Movers and Mentors is the encyclopedia based opportunity to enhance your knowledge and a little bit of snapshots while you're drinking your coffee and then you put it away and come back to it, highlight it. And we're seeing people taking pictures and highlighting certain chapters and quotes and stuff like that. It's so cool to be able to see, but I think hearing that fear and sort of walking away with this message that please do not instill this fear, or at least think about the psychosocial ramifications of your conversations, especially when it's involving the pelvic health region based on all of the other societal complications that that might implement on the patient in front of you. Just to sort of uh, continue that thought is one of the things that I tell folks to younger therapists and even whatever, older, <laughs> so I don't know what the contrast is there, uh, is when they go to combine, combine sections, combine your sections, like go make an effort to go to at least one completely different section than you would normally do. Like, cause that's a great opportunity. It's hard maybe to commit to like a whole course, but let's go hear what's happening in PEDS or neuro. And I know when folks come to my course, um, I love when the course is filled with different kinds of practitioners because their thought processes and their questions take me on new paths. Like oh, huh, like, I don't know how to answer that question really well for your population. Let me think about that. You know what I mean? And let me go sort that out because it's so important because I don't understand all the things that folks are up against in particular diagnoses. So I, I think that that's a really important point. And I do appreciate, I'm excited to read from different, there are people in there I don't recognize the names of. Like, I'm like, oh, this is cool. Like, I don't know who this person is. Sort of reiterating what we talked about at the start of the podcast was this is a living project. This is not a one and done opportunity because I know that we're going to receive flack at some point in time. How dare you not consider so and so a mover and shaker within the industry? We could have literally wrote a thousand page book and not even scratch the surface of all the practitioners out there that have changed this change this field of physical therapy and being able to cast our net initially and understanding that in the next five years, there's going to be new research. What we're doing right now should not be what we're doing in five years, where right? we should continue to change 
and push that boundary a little bit more so. And the movers and shakers are perceived across multiple fronts. Movement, one of the sort of metaphors if you would if you dive into it, movement of our profession is not necessarily just the movement of the body. We are movement experts, right, as physiotherapists, but also movement of yourself, movement of the profession. One of the, one of the guests that we had the opportunity to interview was the National Association for Black Physical Therapists. 15 years ago, we might not have had that conversation as a mover and shaker within the industry, but that's where our profession needs to go. We need to be able to give everybody a voice. And so um, excited to continue to see and challenge those who are listening to this and to read the pages. What's the movement that you're going to make? How are you going to potentially shake, uh, shake the industry? I want to give a shout out to all of the students that I've had. Sorry, my voice is cracking. Um, because as you were saying that, I was thinking there is so much talent and, and we don't see it because there are people who are busy being talented. And, and they may not be on social media where we might see them, or they're not speaking at conferences. And of the 50 bajillion articles coming out, we missed theirs. There are so many talented people in our profession, including some of the students that, that I've had the honor to hang around with that have taught me so much. And that sounds like it's like a, a stage answer. Oh, my students have taught me, but they really have. And I get ideas from them and fresh ways of looking at things. Um, because they aren't so into ruts that we all get into. We get into our practice habits. Um, so all of these voices that we haven't heard yet are just ways for the rest of us to learn. Um, and I, I absolutely know that there are brilliant people out there that I haven't been lucky enough to come across yet. That sort of segues us, Sandy, um, really good points, segues us into the sort of the next question. Um, speaking of students and, and thinking about the population that typically falls into our profession, we tend to be a little bit more type A than the average individual in some way, shape, or form. Some of us more, uh, more A than others. Um, but I think when I think about my students, and can I get two points back in that question because a 92 is really going to hurt my GPA, and, and you try to just breathe for a second and, and um, respond mindfully and tactfully. But that idea that failure is perceived on multiple different fronts, and failure could be perceived as a bad test score it could be perceived as failure from a relationship standpoint, but failure is an opportunity for growth. And when, when we look at sort of these common themes throughout the book, one of the common themes is everybody fails. And normalizing failure, especially in an industry where we perceive these failures as potentially a, a lack of self or a lack of your opportunity to succeed. I look at um, some of these answers of people failing their boards multiple times, right? Um, people failing their last rotation before they went on, or before they graduated, right? Here I am 12 weeks away from being a doctor of physical therapy and I failed my last rotation in orthopedics and now I'm an orthopedic professor. And I think having the opportunity for those individuals to understand that yes, this might be a small speed bump in the road, but all those failures led to other opportunities or a different pathway. One of my favorite answers was from Jeff Moore, um, the Institute of Clinical Ex Excellence. Jeff puts out a lot of good content. Um, and he talked about this concept of the speed wobble in which uh, if you've ever ridden a bike down a hill really, really fast, your front tire starts to wobble back and forth. And you're either on the, on the brink of greatness because you've gone so fast or you're about to epically fail and fly head over handlebars. 
And he talked about this concept of trying to live life on that, on that speed wobble. And so when you guys think about some of the failures in your either profession or in your life that have sort of framed who you are today, what would those failures be and why? Billy, we'll start with you. I think I agree with you. I think it's really uh, important how you set your mindset and how do you perceive failure? For me, very early in my kind of career, I decided I really wanted to be in musculoskeletal physiotherapy. And I was really fighting to get into that rotation. I was really lucky as a junior to get multiple musculoskeletals. So I was one of them who had kind of a chunk of rotations one after another. So it predisposed me to be a senior in musculoskeletal, but no, as soon as I got the senior position, they put me into community. I was like, I'm not doing community. Oh no, no, you are doing community. And then I stopped, I kind of froze there because I was so passionate about musculoskeletal. I had so many ideas, I had vision, I had, I really wanted to do it. But then in, mus- in community gave me something that I'm doing now right now outside my clinic but I didn't know at that point but I was kind of rebelling and and all the time grumbling then my second rotation was supposed to be musculoskeletal no they threw me into burns and I was saying why burns oh you need to go into burns we need help there so I went into burns again grumbling rumbling resenting but now it helps me because I understood I understand a little bit about scar management I didn't know I was end up in pelvic health and the third one that really made me angry was HIV but I loved it to the point that I wanted to stay forever in HIV if I had an opportunity at that time but then they gave me pelvic health and musculoskeletal so I was happy Uh, but HIV set a platform for me that I didn't know so at the beginning I was resenting and I felt like why me why always me being picked to help someone and not to continue with what I wanted to do but it actually gave me an opportunity to work to be encouraged and motivated by Jeremy Lewis um, in research so he really kind of um, understood my passion towards science and collecting all this data about how exercise can help uh, viral load how can we help HIV community and get them off medication that was that was that was just my direction at that time and he really helped me there so if I haven't done all that I don't think that I would be where I am now and I'm so grateful that although I had vision I had to do this little zigzags because they just gave me the gave me what I needed now, but I didn't know at that time. So I felt it as a failure at that time, but now I see it was a gain. Yeah, that's great. I think having the opportunity to sort of say, I I cannot see the answer to why I'm here right now, but this trajectory it's gonna send me on is still gonna give me a life experience. Um, That's awesome. Julie, do you wanna go? Sandy, who who wants to fight over it? I'll um, I'll just chime in a little, I mean, because you can read about my favorite failure in the book, but. Um, and I've actually discovered others who had similar failures, which was uh, not getting into PT school. Uh, and some of my heroes, I was like, no kidding, we're in the same club. But uh, I, I recently was listening to the La La Land soundtrack. And one of the um, songs, the first song, Another Day in the Sun says, um, I, I'm paraphrasing, am I brave or just insane? Only time will tell. And I feel like there are some moments that are really pivotal. Like I really remember very pivotal moments that have led me in this path. Danny Hilton provided me with one of my first, um, but um, it really was a moment of like, am I being brave here or is this insanity to suggest 
X, you know what I mean? But I will say that just, I think the zigzag that um, you mentioned, uh, Billy, is a really accurate way of saying it. And now that I'm with students and I, and I hear this, like, I don't know what I want to do yet. <laughs> like at the end of my, my schooling, I'm not sure yet what I want to do. And I, was, and, I, and I keep telling them, there is no experience that's wasted. There is like all of these like areas of care that I ended up practicing in. I've done home health. I've done pelvic. I've done ortho, I've done cancer, I've done all of these different areas of care and they all inform my practice now. And if nothing else, it has informed my understanding of the whole human. And I think that's my favorite question that you asked Tim in the book. Like I, that's, yeah. I literally just want to jump from each person just on that one question, because I really think that, um, and this is partially social media. Like the minute someone says something out there, like, well, that's crazy. If you believe that you're like, Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Oh man, I've been telling, you know, and then, and then you're automatically in this spiral. And so I think that we, we, we automatically shut back down um, when in reality we should go, Oh, maybe I should, why do I believe that? Let me go, let me go look at the research. Wait, let me ask a few other colleagues that I trust, not this rando on social media, you know, like what, how do I handle this moment versus automatically spiraling and shutting back down? So. And I think that's one of the things real quick where a lot of our physiotherapy students will talk about, I'm, my first clinical experience is in acute care. I really don't want to be there, um, but I'm just waiting for that second rotation in orthopedics and I'm just going to get this one out of the way. And they don't necessarily perceive those as awesome experiences in terms of learning um, and just sort of like, well, I have to get through this one in order to get the one that really matters for me. So I think that's really good to hear both uh, Billy and sort of Julie sort of highlighting those points. Um, so that's awesome. Sandy, what, what, do you, what do you have in terms of failures? Um, so many. How much time do we have? <laughs> so a while ago, I took a stand-up comedy class and, and one of the first things that the teacher said in the first class was that stand-up comedy was learning how to fail in public because the worst thing that will happen is you'll walk off the stage going I'm not telling that one again there were a lot more swear words in that but I cleaned it up and I sat there thinking yes because there isn't really a cost of failing here and that's one of the things that that as a professional and as a human failure means with patients that I might've harmed them. And that is the, exactly not what I'm aiming for. So first do no harm. And I also expect to help them get better. So rather hard on myself, I also consider failure to be not helping them get better. Um, but it isn't because there's this whole buffet of possibilities and I just might not be for them. Um, and it might be that, you know, give it a couple of weeks if we're not changing in a positive direction, you might need a different perspective. And that's not a failure on my part. And it's not a failure on their part. It's a ability to recognize that this might not be the path that's going to help you get to your goals. The sooner we can do that, better, because we're not wasting anyone's time. And we're helping someone and not frustrating ourselves. But it's hard to do because I think my ego gets in the way of I want to be able to help you. And I might not be that for everyone. The other part of failure is our expectations. Like I expected to have be at this point in my life. And the, when our expectations don't go as planned, that can be like personally tragic on all kinds of different levels. Um, 
which is when having mentors and having all these different perspectives is so cool because just flipping through that little book or talking to all my friends around the world you see people that have gone on pathways i wouldn't have expected and it's just so awesome to get out of get out of your niche in physical therapy get out of your country get out of you know only talking to this type of person because there's so many different ways to make this world work and I think we think things are failure when our perspective is too narrow. I think that idea of um, that savior complex that we tend to have um, is fairly challenging. And a lot of times our new graduates that are leaving feel like they know nothing about anything, which is relatively accurate in terms of the idea that it takes 21 years to become 21, right? You, uh, I think Mike Reinald had a really good um, sort of closing thoughts within the book in terms of what it takes to become an expert. And that idea that we try to jump to this expert level before we have experiences. And at that time, you only know what you know. So you cannot expect to treat or be an expert within the field until you have and built up this database of experiences and sort of piggybacking off of that, that idea that it is okay to not get people better. And that idea that that is not necessarily a reflection of failure upon yourself but just an opportunity for learning and opportunity for growth. And I think we walk around with this imposter syndrome, um, especially as we are early on in our practice in terms of why am I here? Why am I the clinician treating this patient that has had um, this prolapse? I, have, I just learned about this. I've never experienced this before. I shouldn't be the best person for this job. And I think opportunity to learn and embrace those feelings and then sort of piggybacking off of that, multiple, multiple piggybacks, um, is the opportunity for mentorship and being willing to ask for help. And I think that opportunity to say, I am uncomfortable in a situation, I know I do not know everything, and me asking for help is not a failure, is going to be a huge theme that we see sort of throughout the pages of this book but something that hopefully people can take to heart a little bit. Well, we still feel like that. I don't know. Maybe you guys don't. I still feel like that. There's so many days I come home. I'm like, why didn't I make this person better? What is wrong with me? And I don't even know how long I've been working, but I feel, and I think I said it in the book that the, you know, as we get better and we get older, we're just more comfortable with those feelings, or maybe we're not as, we're not more comfortable with them, but I can actually put them off to the side and just move on and not constantly think about them. Now, my most recent failure, apart from potentially messing up the beginning of this podcast, <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> God, um, it's, it's funny because, um, rather than like a patient perspective, it's more been about the places that I've worked, that I have worked in many clinics with many different people. And it, it's not that it doesn't work out. I don't know what it is. And I don't know, I, I just remember thinking, this isn't the place for me, I've got to move on, or I don't think that I deserve to be treated that way. So I'm going to find another place to go. So I feel like I have hopped around and I even have been running my own clinic for six years and I still have one of my clinic days that I'm every few years I'll change locations and I'm always asking my husband, what's wrong with me? Like, why can't I just stay in one place? Like, obviously the common denominator is me. 
and so he's like well you you are the common denominator you just but you know what you want so from all of these like you know I, you can consider them failures that it just has not worked out at these places i've definitely learned the type of people that i want to work with what i will put up with what i won't put up with and what you know i want my business to look like and how i want to be able to treat people and the time i want to be able to give people so having gone through all of that has really made me go no, I don't want to work 50 hours. I, if I can, you know, work a little bit harder, but in shorter days, then that definitely works for me. So can I just flip the script just slightly as we talk about failure and the whole imposter versus savior syndromes and all that kind of stuff, just to flip the idea as well, that when we're successful, like if we're suggesting that then success is that we've gotten them better in the same way that my skill set may not match what you need and then I need to move you on, I often say to my patients who I am this final practitioner that they've seen, I'm so glad that my skill set is what you needed. Like it's, it flips this idea that I'm somehow this big savior. It's that the reality is, is my combination of whatever fit your need. Um, and it could be partially <laughs> placebo effect, like Sandy said, or something, although I, I know that the ideas help other people, but at the same time, like at that perfect, for such a time as this, I was the right person at the right moment and I had the right skills for you. So, um, and I often say things like, oh, the previous practitioners, they loosened the ketchup bottle for me. And then I got to like, you know, pop it off and look like the hero. And so I think we also need to balance that in terms of our own understanding of not only our successes, but our failures is to walk away and say, okay, what worked there? Also to keep moving us forward with confidence, but not arrogance and saviorism, you know, so. You had said, Tim, that using the book can be like putting all the different pieces, like making your own little Frankenstein mentor of thoughts on one thing from, from someone and something from someone else. Because that's really how life works anyway, is there isn't, there isn't one answer. There's a lot of different answers that fit at different times. Um, and I think that that concept is a really elegant one of using what works for you now and knowing that there are a lot of different possibilities um, instead of you have to find the right thing. One of the things that I sort of want to conclude with, uh, respecting everybody's time, but also I think an awesome opportunity to dive into um, a little bit of a soapbox speech. If you had the mic for a second, you had the audience um, and all their attention, you had the opportunity to give a message and give a message to either physiotherapy students or young professionals, healthcare practitioners, what would your message be and why? Look for the good things in all of your situations and write them down. Keep a journal of things that work well, things you love, not a stuff that went wrong that I don't want to do, but uh, I like this. This was fabulous. That's amazing. I, I started journaling probably four or five years ago. And every year before my birthday, I reread my journal just to sort of perceive what, what sort of life experiences have I had since my birthday was last week. Um, and so I've had the opportunity to sort of go through those pages and it's amazing what we forget on a day-to-day -day basis and we remember the the big ones and, the, and the, the traumatizing events and i think especially within physical physical therapy it's easy to say why well, that person's getting kind of better but four people today were in more pain and so you leave more emotionally uh empty if you would than fulfilled 
And so having those opportunities to write down those successes, Sandy, and those happy moments and sort of diving into that, keep that on your desk. So when you are feeling a little bit overwhelmed and the documentation hasn't finished itself yet, um, and you have a double booking here or, or an extra cancellation there that just got filled, diving into that to still remember your why and to sort of pull upon those moments of joy is, is valuable. Um, Billy, what about you? Well, if you entered medical university, any medical science, I think just keep curiosity, imagination going. And that will keep your labor of, uh, labor of love. Basically, we're all in labor of love, but it will be passionate. And you will never step away because it's great. We know that science is very fragile. There are lots of vulnerability, uh, vulnerabilities around science. And thanks to Neil O'Connell, I learned quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> long way to master it um, but this is why this profession is just amazing carry on curiosity write it down like Sandy said and I think that curiosity and, and that passion is one of the, the beauties of the profession because we have the opportunity to pivot in so many ways um, and whether that be from an entrepreneurial standpoint diving into podcasting academia um, going and working with the patients, like you talked about, Billy, in their sphere of where they're having the difficulty, you can create your practice to what it needs to be. So it doesn't necessarily need to become stagnant or stale. And I think that opportunity that there are options within your profession um, is something that our young graduates need to sort of explore and, and dive into. Julie, what about you? To really be adaptable, like be light on your feet. <laughs> Be resilient, like don't, don't assume that things have to look a certain way to be effective or to look like care or like, I think that probably what they'll see thematically in the book and even in our conversation today is none of us really played by the rule book. None of us, like we've shaped our own way of intersecting with patients. We've shaped our clinical environments. We've, we've sort of built it in a way that matches our skill sets. Uh, matches who we are, um, and we sort of adapted to um, our learning and our growth, you know, and so, and I think too, when we talk about writing, really, it's reflective, be reflective, and um, try to understand who you are, why you're there, um, and, and keep adapting, but don't lose your, like, Lori, I hear, what I'm hearing with what your little journey was talking about there is you stay true to you, and I think that's what gets lost for so many people. They think that this is what it looks like to be a good physical therapist and they get lost, who they are gets lost. And I think that we need to be adaptable to what we're learning, but we also need to, to make sure we don't get lost in that process. And we need to adapt where we are and how we apply that. I think people assume that it has to look a certain way. And the reality is, is that you, who you are is going to resonate with certain people and, um, and, and those people need you. They don't need some carbon copy of me. You know? I think that that so. concept that you you are enough and stay true to you, right? You are you are enough, the person that you are. Um, find your why and stay true to your why. Stay true to your mission. Um, I think is something that's valuable. Lori, finishing up with you, what's uh, well, what's your message? What's your what's your statement? Look, my original message was going to come down to what I tell my kids all the time and something I saw on one of the episodes of Ted Lasso because it was just one of the best 
shows ever um was really just <laughs> telling people not to be a wanker which i know in north america i don't think you use that term but i don't know if i can say dickhead on here so maybe i'll have to bleep that out but either way it's just being a nice person um i think is really important but i then saw a quote today and i thought actually this could be a really good quote i know maybe it's the other day because i tagged somebody in it and i don't know where it's from but it said don't get burnt out for those who can replace you because to those who love and care for you you're irreplaceable because we burn ourselves out doing the stuff that we absolutely love but really if we you know think about it in the end eventually we won't be doing it anymore and people will come and replace us and i don't think we need to think about that as a bad thing um but i do think that you know just kind of always keeping that in mind um that it is not the end all of everything that maybe that will help that's awesome and i think that's one of the things uh john childs um made a comment that we really do stand on the shoulders of giants in terms of the concept that there are individuals that have paved the way before us and we have the opportunity to sort of stand on the, the pavement, if you would, that they allowed for us to continue to practice on, whether that is a Shirley Sarman or Brian Mulligan, a Robin McKenzie, a Stanley Paris, some of these individuals that we look on in terms of our PT history um, and some of the pages within our book um, and understanding that there's gonna be people that are going to replace us, like you talked about, Lori, and that is okay because at this, at this time you are enough, but if you're willing to adapt and willing to understand that what you said five years ago and what you did five years ago potentially might not be exactly who you are today, but owning that that was you at the time and that was enough that you were able to provide at that time, I think is, is something that's valuable. That's awesome. Thank you guys so much for having the opportunity to come on and speak and share your thoughts and opinions. And I think obviously if you wanted to dive more into what Julie, Sandy and Lori have to say, that's uh, where we have the opportunity to sort of highlight our book, Movers and Mentors, which you can find on uh, online at www.moversandmentors.com. It's also available on Amazon. But I think this is a great opportunity for young professionals, individuals within the physiotherapy movement science field, or those individuals just looking for life advice from some individuals that have gained some experience in multiple different facets before us um, to sort of open the pages and utilize it, like we said, as an encyclopedia for a little bit of self-help. Thank you. All of the links, everything Thanks, will be in the show notes. Um, thanks, guys, for organizing. Well, I, I guess I organized it, but, but you know, <laughs> dealing with me, <laughs> coming along. So, thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening and joining us. It was so much fun to record and just sit down with all of them. I could have done it for hours. Please um, go to moversandmentors.com so that you can find out some more information. It also will give you the link to go find the book in um, whatever edition that you are looking for. And I hope that everyone is taking care of themselves. <laughs>